let's um, go straight to Jude. I'm going to review very quickly. Let's just read through the first few verses, and I want to just touch on a couple of things that we've already dealt with. Jude, verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Two things I want us to look at. I'm, I'm just going to look from verse 4 on. If, if you want to go back, the, the, the uh, messages are on the podcast. There's just too much to go in and, and follow up everything. But I want to look at these two things that it says the ungodly men will do. They turn the grace of God into lewdness or into lasciviousness. Basically, anything goes. Attitude is what lasciviousness means. We normally, most Westerners normally take that and automatically think of sexual sin. But it, it, it just that attitude towards sin in general. There, in fact, the, when you take it to its, to its most extreme version, it basically says there is no sin. There, you know, nothing, God will not condemn me for anything. And you take that out far enough and you get to universalism, where in the end, God's just, because he's a loving God, he will just bring everybody back into the fold. Even Satan will be saved and all of the angels will be saved. Well, Jude's going to deal with that and, and the falsehood of that. But if you, if you do that, if you take the grace of God, and you, and, and you misinterpret God's grace and make out God's grace to mean that we have absolute freedom to do anything, then eventually that will lead to the denial of Jesus as Lord. Because, you know, there, there is a, a, a um, especially for us good Americans, you know, um, American, we, we, we came into existence as rebels. We rebelled against the tyranny of the king, and we just have that rebel spirit in us. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody's going to put restrictions on me. Now, you want to see this, walk into a high school classroom, um, and you, you, you can get on, on YouTube and watch the videos where teenagers uh, will be um, confronted by a policeman and a policeman tells them to do something and I've seen them, I've seen it in school I've had it confronted, they'll just stiffen up, don't touch me don't touch me you know. and usually the ones that, that, that are really funny are when you know the teenager's 5 foot nothing and 120 pounds and he's talking to a 6 foot 3 cop who weighs 300 pounds and it's, you can just, you know where this is going at some point, he's going to submit, and he's usually going to submit because a big heavy man is sitting on him with a knee in his back, pinning his arms behind him. And, and that attitude, though, sometimes is reflected by us that I, I chafe at being restricted. I don't, I, I, I want my freedom. You can't, I have rights, and you cannot tell me what to do. Well, the, the difference for us as Christians and in a Christian attitude is, do we look at Jesus as our Savior, period? Or do we look at Jesus as our Savior slash Lord? Because there's a huge difference between those. Just looking at Jesus as Savior, period, means I want fire insurance, Jesus, I believe in your atoning sacrifice. I don't want to go to hell, but don't tell me what I need to do. <laughs> and Jesus says, this is a package deal. You want me as Savior, you got to take me as Lord. And if you don't take me as Lord, I'm not your Savior. It's, it's like trying to get water without the wet. 
You get out and get in the water, you're going to get wet. They come as a package deal. When you take Jesus as your Savior, you must take Him as your Lord. Now, let's be honest, when you first get saved, there's not much of the Lordship of Christ in you because you don't know anything about it. You don't, know any, you don't have any words. You don't know what He's wanting out of you. You don't know what He's asking of you. But it starts and, it, and you grow. It's the same way as our childhood. You know, with, with infants, there's only one response from infants. When they have a want, they scream until that want gets met. Because that's the only way they have to communicate. Baby Christians do the same. They throw fits. You know, the, 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 the problem comes when you have Christians that are 30 years into their faith and they're still throwing fits. We need to grow. That's part of what, what Jude is telling us. We do have absolute freedom in Christ, but that absolute freedom also comes with responsibilities. Gina and I have, have, have used to joke together, and both of our parents did this. You would ask them, you know, we had this with, with Ryan. Uh, he was here last week visiting, and, and he used to say, when can I eat off the big people's menu? And it's like when you can f eat the meal. When you can only eat a third of the meal, I'm not paying full price. You're eating the kid's meal. Sorry, I'm cheap. And that was just that way. But eventually it got to where he, he, his appetite got up there and he got the thing. Our parents, mine and Gina's parents, used to tell us when we would say, when do I get to do this? When you grow up and get married. And we said that was the greatest lie they ever told us. Because when you grow up, you probably want to do it and you have the freedom to do it. You don't have the money to do it. And when you get married, then you've got a spouse that you've got to clear it with. And nine times out of ten, they're not going to, they're either going to say, you know, usually it's, it's if, you're, if you're working together, it's like, I really want this. We can't afford it. But we need a new car. Not really. The old one's got 5,000 miles on it. You bought it six months ago. It just lost the smell, but we need one with the smell. No, we can't do it. That is having responsibility with your freedom. When you, when, just in general life, when you live with the freedoms and forget the responsibilities, it just doesn't work real well. The Bible talks about this. 1 Peter 2, verse 16, New King James, For you are free, yet you are God's slaves. That is... That is the same Greek word doulos that, that we saw in Jude when Jude said, I'm a bondservant. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. The Phillips translations, I love the way Phillips phrases this. He says, as free men, you should never use your freedom as an excuse for doing something that is wrong. For you are at all times the servants of God. We have to understand, and this is Jesus as Lord, not just as Savior. I am God's servant, therefore my freedom has to be used for God's good and not my selfish ambitions or my selfish wants. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.20, same thing. In, in, in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been rebuking the Corinthians throughout this entire letter about their lasciviousness. It's just everything goes. In fact, Paul said, you know, you, you guys, you call yourself Christians, but you have sin in your church that nobody, even the unbelievers, look at you and say this is crazy. You have a guy who has taken his stepmother and taken her out of a marriage to his father and is living with them, living with her in sin. And you're just looking at it, nodding your head, saying, eh, no biggie, and it's okay. In response to that, Paul writes, For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God. Again, the Phillips translation, You have been bought, and at what a price? Therefore, bring glory to God, both in your body and your spirit, for they both belong to Him. We cannot 
just say, I am a Christian inwardly. God has made me holy. God has made me pure. That is all true. But if that is not reflected in our lifestyle, in our outward actions, and I'm not just talking because as good Christians, as good Americans, we normally will we'll go over and, and look at the sins of the flesh. Smoking, drinking, cussing, carousing, all of those. Are they bad? Yes. But we tend to forget gluttony. We tend to forget backbiting and gossiping and thinking ill of others. God puts those in the same categories he puts the first ones. They're, they're all rotten. We can't categorize it. And what we normally do, and I've, I've seen this and I've, I've seen it when I first recognize it, I see it in all kinds of situations. And, and we talked about this in men's prayer yesterday morning. We tend to judge other people by their actions or their words we tend to judge ourselves by our motivation, what we meant to do or meant to say. They're two different things. And, and Billy, really, we ought to have those reversed. We ought to be judging everyone else on, what, on their intentions and always think that their intentions were the best for us and, ju and, and judge myself on it, what I say. Because I guarantee you, if you've been married more than five minutes, there are going to be times when your spouse looks at you and says, why did you say that? And you look right back at them and say, well, what did I say? And they'll tell you what they heard, and your thought is, I didn't say that. But that is what comes across. Whether you meant it or not, we need to, we need to walk in, in, in the lordship of Jesus. We saw this, and, and I'm just going to touch on these, seven times during the... Moses confronting Pharaoh about letting his people go, coming out of Egypt, which is a type of the new birth. Seven different times, Moses directly told Pharaoh, the first one was in Exodus 5.1, God said, tell Pharaoh, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The last six times, he said to him, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And serve is really an, um, 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 an older translation. Most of the contemporary translators will translate that more according to the Hebrew, where to serve God is to worship God. Moses, or God through Moses, was telling Pharaoh, you need to let my people out of slavery so they can come to the wilderness and worship me. The whole point of coming out of Egypt was to be able to worship God and worship Him, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we, we, we do that by the renewing of our mind, by being a living sacrifice, which is, uh, Barclay's translation says, which is a reasonable service of worship. Our, our lifestyle, our, our actions... Worship God or bring dishonor to the kingdom. The only reason that he brought us out of sin was so we could live a life holy before him. Amen? Now, Jude 5, and I'm going to do this one really quickly. Jude said, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. For us... Walking in unbelief after we're born again is the same as sinning. And, and literally, we, I've taught this before, I'm not going to go back and do it. The unbelief here is, is putting our focus on the wrong thing. It's putting our, our focus on ourself. I'm, I'm just an unworthy worm. No, you're not. If you are, Jesus is a liar because he said, I've made you just like me. You're sitting with me now in heavenly places. He said, I've redeemed you. I've recreated you. So you're not a worm. Or you look at your circumstances and say, this can't be corrected. This is going downhill. And we are going to crash. Well, where in the Word does it say that? Show me your scripture that you're standing on that God's going to do that to you. Well, that's just life. Well, we are opposed to life. 
We take God's word and impose God's will on life. That's what he's called us to do. Then, that's the first example that he gave us. The second one is in verse 6 where we want to concentrate today. He says, "...in the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day." Notice this. He, he, his first example was the, the Hebrew children, I brought you out of Egypt. I got you saved. That's a type of salvation. I got you over in the wilderness, was going to teach you how to worship me. That was what the wilderness experience was all about. Build the tabernacle, learn how to worship me. And when he said, okay, it's time you've learned this, you need to go in and conquer your land. They said, no, we can't do that. The giants are too big. Translate that, the giants are bigger than you are, God. David faced the same thing when he came to the, 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 the army that was camped against the Philistines. Goliath got up and boasted about how great he was and how great his God was and how miserable, sniveling, and poor your God is, Israel. And David got his back up. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to talk about our God that way? And everybody said, who are you, squirt? You're just a kid. He said, yeah, I may just be a kid, but when I was out with the sheep, when the lion came, God helped me kill the lion. I grabbed him by his beard. That means he was face to face with a lion, and he killed it. It takes God's grace to do that. He said, when the bear came, God helped me kill the bear, and in the same way, God will help me kill that un uncircumcised Philistine. He concentrated on the fact that he was uncircumcised. He does not have a covenant with our God. And you guys' problem, you're all in your big armor, you are all got your swords, you got your spears, but you don't know who your God is. And David did. And he didn't go after him with an armor, with a spear. He even had to take, steal Goliath's sword to cut Goliath's head off after he killed him. He didn't have any weapons except a sling and a rock. And it was enough because God was with him. That's what he, he's saying there in verse 5. And then he says, our second example, the angels didn't keep their proper domain. It's interesting. That word there, keep, literally means to guard. Reminds me of, of Genesis 2.15 where God placed the man, Adam, in the garden to cultivate it and guard it. It says to keep it, but it, it, that, that Hebrew word there means to guard it. That ought to have been a clue to Adam. There's somebody that's going to come in and try to do something here, and I need to be on guard. And instead, he wasn't on guard. Eve got deceived, and he's, Adam stood right there and let it happen. Because he wouldn't open his mouth, he wouldn't deal with the serpent. How, how the world would have been different had Adam done that. But these angels did the same thing. They didn't guard their proper domain. It's the, the Greek word arche, which literally means um, a, the, the corners of a, of a um, sail or a cornerstone. It's your primary place of reference. It's where you start from. The angels, now they, keep in mind, these are God's messengers. These are angelic beings, not messengers as we are messengers. These angelic creatures, in fact, if you read the second part of, of that, it says, but they left their own abode. That's an interesting word there. It's, it's a word for home, for dwelling place, paired with the word for prison. What are you saying, that their own abode was God had them in prison? Not prison in the sense that they were, were, after, were chained afterwards, but when God created the angels, He said, this is your role, and it's very restrictive. You are my messengers, and you only say what I say, period. You have no free will. You cannot do anything but just speak my word. You are restricted, and very closely restricted. They did not guard that, that domain, that proper, that where God placed them and how he placed them. Instead, Lucifer rose up and said, no, we don't have to take this. I don't have to speak God's word. I'm, I'm as glorious as he is, and I'll just put my throne above his throne. 
And it said a third of the angels went with him. They said, we're going to leave what you said our job is, and we're going to do what we want to do. And one of the sins, and this is the, the interesting part of this, and I'm not going to go way off into this, um, Later on in Jude, Jude is one of the few books that actually quotes a non-canonical book. Jude takes a, a portion of the book of Enoch, which we have, or at least we have a version of the book of Enoch. It's, if it, we don't know if it's exactly the same book of Enoch that Jude would have had because the, the oldest book that we have comes from like the 4th century, where Jude was in the 1st century. So, but, but it has this, the, the quote that Jude's going to use later on, and the whole book of Enoch deals with these angels and their revolt. And what he goes back to, the book of Enoch, whoever wrote it, goes back to when Genesis quotes about the angels coming and reproducing with, with women and producing giants. And the sin there for these angels, not only did they sin by following Lucifer and his revolt, but they also took on the sin that we are going to reproduce ourselves. God has never called or allowed an angel to reproduce themselves. God said, you have one job, speak my word, that's it, nothing else. And you only say exactly what I say. And they were good at that, the ones that stayed in their proper domain. Us... On the other hand, he has said, this is what I'm going to do for you. You are trapped in your sin. I'm going to pay the price for that, and I'm bringing you out of your sin. But I'm not just bringing you out to a neutral standing. I'm bringing you out, and I'm exalting you to my standard. I am going to seat you with me in heavenly places. And now that you are seated with me in heavenly places, you are part of my body. You are representing me in the world and my command to you reproduce yourself you speak my word you give the good news and bring people into that kingdom and reproduce after the way you were, were brought into the kingdom that is our function the angels left theirs and it says that they are they have been reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They literally are bound. If you go back, we, we talked about Moses talking to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 10, um, verse 21 through 23. One of the, in fact, it's the, the ninth plague. Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him, if you don't let us go, Darkness is going to come upon Egypt. Not just darkness, though. And it's not just absolute darkness. I've experienced absolute darkness. You go on a cave tour, they'll almost always shut all the lights off, and you'll be in absolute darkness. You cannot see the hand in front of your face. That's not what this was. It says in the, the verse 21 of Exodus 10, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. This was some type of a fog, something that came in to where they couldn't, it was absolute darkness, but they could feel it. And it says that, that in verse 22, So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. There was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. They were afraid to even move. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Again, their abode, going back to Jude 6, the angels left their abode, and they are bound now. The, the children of Israel had light as long as they stayed in their buildings, their dwelling. When they stayed within their call, there was light. But when they, if they stepped outside, they would have been exposed to that same darkness, and they could not have seen anything. These angels from Jude 6 are bound in that. They literally cannot move. They are chained. They've been chained since, the, since this happened in Genesis, however many years ago that was. And they will remain chained until the white throne judgment. When, when, when we deal with evil spirits, we're not dealing with the fallen angels. 
we're, I'm, I, there are a lot of theories on where the evil spirits come from, but these angels are bound. They're locked up, and they can't come out. And God will not let them out until it's time to be judged. And then they'll, they'll come out, they'll stand before him, he'll unchain them, he'll toss them back in the lake of fire. That's their future. And there's no redemption for them. John said this about us, though. John chapter 3. This is right after John 3.16. We're going to start in verse 18, where Jesus said, you know, everybody quotes John 3.16. But in verse 18... It says, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Belief or unbelief is a very important distinction. Whether you're born again or not born again, when, when you are not born again and you exercise faith, it transfers your citizenship. Once your citizenship is transferred, if you started in faith, you need to continue in faith. The problem is, verse 19, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. We, when we get born again, part of that process is we expose our, our sin. John said it in, in, in 1 John 1, 9. He said if we, or I believe it's in 7, if we say that we have no sin, we lie and do not tell the truth. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Part of that process, whether we are just getting born again or trying to walk out this thing, is that we have to come before God and say, Look, God, I am incapable of doing what you want me to do. I can't do this. I can't live this life. And he said, of course you can't. That's why you need my power. That's why you need my spirit. Do it by faith. And then we step out in faith when he tells us to do something, and, and it's like, wow, that worked. <laughs> you know? First time you ever lay hands on the sick, and they do recover. Because I've always heard from people, I've heard it a lot more than I hear, wow, I laid hands on that person, and they got better. I always hear, well, what if I lay hands on them, and they, they, they die? Are they going to die now? It's like last week we talked about the four lepers at the gate of Samaria. They're sitting there saying, look, if we sit here, we're going to starve. If we try to go in the city, they're going to kill us. They don't have food anyway. There's only one hope, and that's the, that's the camp of the enemy. Let's at least go down there. They'll either kill us or they'll have mercy and give us some food. And they got up and walked there, and God used the sound of those four lepers walking to terrify the enemy and they ran or killed each other thinking that there was enemy in the camp and they were fighting each other in their panic. They either ran off or killed each other. Four lepers. Well, I want to be at least smart as the lepers. And leprosy is a type of sin. Even when we don't have a lot of faith, we step out and do what God's shown us to do or we think, no, I need to hide my sin. And if I need to hide my sin, I can't come into the light. Because if I come into the light, the light will expose me. That's why a lot of people don't want to get in God's presence. Because you get in God's presence and you'll see exactly who you are and how you are. He'll expose your thinking to you. He does it not to condemn you. He does it to say, we need to deal with this. It's time to grow up. It's time to get this fixed. Well... If you're afraid, it's, it's like I had, I actually had a relative say this to me. It's like, you know, I, I really have this problem, and it was an intestinal thing. And it's like, I said, well, why don't you go to the doctor and get it checked out? Oh, what if I go to the doctor and he tell me it's cancer? Like, well, let's examine this logically. If you have cancer, does not knowing it make the cancer go away? No. If you do have cancer and the doctor identifies it, does he possibly have a treatment? Well, maybe. Then why sit in ignorance? There's no point. Same way with this. I know that I am a failure at everything I do. Even though God helps me succeed, 
I know it's despite me, not because of me. I had somebody tell me, a visitor told me a few weeks ago, he said, brother, you're a good teacher. And I know he probably went home and his head exploded because I said, thank you, I am. <laughs> and it wasn't arrogance that made me say that. It was that I am confident in the gift that God's put in me because I cannot tell you the thousands of times that I've stood behind a pulpit and been teaching something and suddenly I'm standing here but the real me is back here thinking, man, that was good. I wish I had thought of it. Because you, you can, I can feel when the gift engages and it's not me. Now, I study to show myself approved because the gift won't work if I don't charge it. But there will be things that I don't have in my notes. A lot of times you'll see me sitting up here during praise and worship and I'm, I'm writing things. It's because I've studied all week. I've studied for weeks on this stuff. And I sit down and it's like, man, these thoughts start coming to me. And it's like, why did I not? Why am I just now getting this? Because the anointing's starting to kick in. And when the anointing kicks in, the gift kicks in. And when the gift kicks in, oh, it's easy. Now, I've also stood in the pulpit when it was dry as dust. It was just me. And I'm thinking, i got to shorten this up and get out of here before they stone me. You know, I used to tell my ushers, you know, when, when they come in, just kind of peer at their pockets and make sure there's no big bulges. And if there are, go check them for rocks. Because I don't want them chucking fruit, don't want them chucking rocks. That's, that's our attitude. God, I can't do this, but I know you can do it through me. I have confidence in you, and I'm going to step out in faith and do what I know I can't do. Why? Because he's in me. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 4. Paul has been laying out through Ephesians, and I'm going to read through this very quickly, and I'm going to stop um, first time is, is in verse 12, but I want to get all of the context here. Verse 4 says, But God who is rich in mercy. Everything we have from God is because of His mercy. Mercy and grace are, are, are the twins that keep us propelled. God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Literally what Paul's saying there is when Jesus came out of the grave, we came out of the grave with him. 2,000 years ago, I came out of the grave and was seated with Christ. Now, I'm an old man. I'm getting ready to turn 67, but I'm not 2,000. How could you come out of the grave? Because God saw me coming out of the grave with Christ before I ever existed. Verse 7. He did that so that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take all eternity to figure, for us to figure out what God has done for us through Christ. We will never plumb the depths of his grace and his blessing on us. Never. I can't wait to start though. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He saved us so we could walk in good works. We didn't walk in good works to get saved, but once we are saved, he said, look, i got a path you need to walk, and I've prepared some things for you. And it's going to be fun when you get there. But you're going to have to do it by faith. Verse 11, Therefore, remember, you are in this exalted state now, but remember, you were once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Keep in mind, when you talk to people that are not Christians, they have no hope. None. Because they're without God. Without God, you have no hope. With God, you got all kinds of hope. And hope is just a projection of what God wants, has already given you. That's His way of saying, this is yours. Embrace it by faith. 
It's a picture of where He wants you to go. Verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the wall, middle wall of separation. The wall that He broke down is twofold. It's the wall between Jew and Gentile. We, have been, we, haven't, we don't replace Israel, but we are grafted into Israel. We are God's people now. But even more than that, the wall that He broke down is the wall of the law. The law that condemns you. The law that says you are a no good sinner. Well, I thought that was true. Yeah, it was. But not after you're born again. You're a saint who sins, but you're not a sinner. There are lots of sinners out there that do good works. That's a puzzlement. But there are saints who also sin. And we need to do it less and less as we grow up. The same way when I was a kid, my dad used to joke. He said, you ran, he told me as I got older, he said, you used to run into walls all the time. And I'd say, well, why was that? He said, because you'd always look one way and run the other way. And you'd run into things. It's because I wanted to know what everything, I was in a hurry to get where I was going, but I wanted to know where I'd been. So I didn't pay attention. Guess what? I don't do that anymore. I did that when I was one, two, three years old. I didn't know any better. You don't have to run under too many walls and you figure out, that hurts. So I, I said when I was a kid, I was in all kinds of fights. I was usually going after a bully that was picking on somebody. I just had this innate nature. I didn't like bullies. And when I see somebody being a bully, man, my flesh rises up. And as a kid, I went after them. And I'd go after guys twice my size and get beat. Well, as I got older, I realized... Even when I won the fight, I really didn't win. I came away bruised and hurt. And as an adult, it's like, why, why do this? I watch these guys, the ultimate fighters, and I'm thinking, are you crazy? You're going to get in a, in a ring and let that big guy punch you just so you can win a belt? Earn some money? I'm going to go use my brain to figure out a way to work and earn money without getting my body beaten up. That's painful, and it lasts for a long time. I remember watching uh, the Thriller in Manila, Joe Frazier and, and Muhammad Ali. Do you know both of those fighters spent two to three weeks in the hospital after that fight? They beat each other. Muhammad Ali stayed longer than Joe Frazier did, but they both had to be hospitalized. Why? So they could earn a few million dollars? I wouldn't mind having a few million dollars, but I'm not going to let Joe Frazier beat me to get it. The law beat us. It beat you, and it whipped you, and it told you you were rotten and no good for a reason, so you would look for a Savior. It's not until you think you're drowning that you're going to look for help. But when the law says you're drowning, you start looking for help. In verse 15, this is what God did. He broke down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enemy, the yeah, enmity, the law. Jesus abolished the law by, by paying the price for the sins of, of breaking the law, and he fulfilled the law. He did both. He walked perfectly in this world, fulfilling every law that God had. And afterwards, He went to the cross and paid the price for all of our breaking of the law. So the law no longer has a hold on me. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in Himself, create in Jesus, in Christ, one new man from the two. There, today, there in, Paul says it in several places, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. I love listening to some of these academics argue about how, you know, men, this evil patriarchy is the problem of all the world. And, you know, if we could just exalt women to positions of power, all of our problems would be solved. No, they wouldn't. If you think women aren't just as capable of being evil as any man, you're deceived. All of our hearts are dark. It's, it's only by making peace with Jesus and becoming, coming into Him and becoming part of the new man, this body of Christ. That's how we make peace with God. That's how we make peace with ourselves. 
He did it, verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. He preached peace to the Jews. He preached peace to the Gentiles. It's, it's, if you want to see an Old Testament type, the, the nation of Israel had the tabernacle. The tabernacle had very strict rules on how you get into the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could get in and then only once a year. And yet when David became king, when he brought the ark back to Jerusalem, he put it in a tent, pulled the flaps up, had the ark out by itself and said, Y'all come. Here's the ark. Here's the presence of God. There is nothing to do other than you just come into his presence. That's why we are the tabernacle of David. David broke all the rules. All of them. How did he get away with that? Because God told him to do it. It was God giving us a pre-glimpse of this is what it's going to be like after the Messiah comes. David was a type of the Messiah. When Jesus comes and he breaks the power of the law, he breaks the power of sin, and you come into him and you become one with him, then the throne room is open. God's presence, Hebrews says it, come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in a time of need. And I've said it before, if your heart's beaten, you're in need. Get in God's presence. There'll be light there and it'll shine up everything that's wrong. Zechariah talks about that. He brought in the high priest Joshua in, in Zechariah's time. And when he came in, the devil was right there saying, God, look at this guy. He's, got, he's not just got mud, he's got manure all over him. He's supposed to be clean. He's the high priest. What was that representing? That was representing the sins of Israel, the sins of the believers. And what was God's, you know, most people, if they put themselves in God's place, they would say, well, you're gone. Just burn them up. You know, we've, I've said it before. It's a good thing I'm not God, especially when I get on the highway. Because I have imaginary missiles that come out of my car every once in a while. You know, I got a James Bond car. There's little flaps that come up and a missile comes out and that car's gone. Well, it's a good thing I don't have that power because my flesh sometimes gets in control of my actions. But God didn't have that reaction to, jo to Joshua's sin in Zechariah. He said, put clean clothes on him. Bring me a clean turban. I'm going to change the way he thinks. And we'll clean him up from the inside out. That's what Paul's telling us we need to do here. Um, verse 18, For through him, through Christ, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember, this all started in Jude 6 about the angels leaving their dwelling place their proper abode. Jesus says, now we are of the household of God. Our abode is in heaven with Christ. Verse 20, this household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Remember, they left their cornerstone which was what God called them to do. He's telling us here in Ephesians, you are built on that cornerstone and you are being built up a whole building, being fitted together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord. We're, we, we are the temple of God in one sense, and we are also part of the greater temple of God as Christians, as the body of Christ. And then verse 22, is, I read all that to get to there in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So what's the point? Point, verse 5 of Jude, what you begin in faith, you've got to finish in faith. Paul said it in Galatians 3. It says, New King James, verse 1 says, O foolish Galatians, you want the actual literal translation? Oh, you crazy people! What is going on with you? Who's bewitched you? Who put a spell on your brain that you should obey, not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? I only want to know one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the Spirit of God, by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? 
Are you so foolish? Robert's translation, are you so stupid that having begun in the Spirit, you think you're now being made perfect by the flesh? That's Paul's way in Gal to the Galatians of saying, you started this in faith, you've got to walk it out by faith all the way through it, and it will end with faith. It's faith to start, faith in the middle, and faith at the end, because our faith is in Jesus and what He's told us to do. And He said, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. I started this thing, I'll finish it, and I'll preserve you in the middle of it. But you've got to do it by faith. We've got to do what the, what the angels didn't do. We need to guard our home. My home is heaven. The gospel is my job. The angels were called just to repeat verbatim what God said, and other than that, stay, just shut up. My job is to take the gospel and proclaim the gospel, to bring heaven to earth through the preaching of the gospel, the good news. The good news is heaven's open to you. All you've got to do is just come in, the flaps of the tent. You don't have to go through the, the entrance and, and go by the altar and pick up and, and make a sacrifice and then clean yourself up and then come into the, the holy place and make sure you're clean and then go in that veil and hope you're clean because if not, God will strike you dead. His presence will kill you. God said, no, just take the, by faith the blood of Jesus and the, the tent flaps go up and you just come into my presence. You are welcome there is no condemnation here. The angels didn't guard theirs. We are called to guard. But if we step out of our domain, if we take on responsibility that isn't ours, we forget who we are, what our call is, then we end up in trouble. Then we walk out of that dwelling place like the, the, the Israelites in Goshen had, and we step outside and we step out into darkness. And I don't know about you, but I, I know sometimes when I do that. Well, how do I stay in the light? Philippians 4, probably the best example of it. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing. In other words, quit worrying. Jesus said in the Gospels, can you worry and add one inch to your height? No. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. I'm praying and asking God for things, but I'm praying in thanksgiving because I know I'm only asking for what He's already said is mine. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. That's where the angels fell. That's where we need to be careful that we don't quit worrying, but ask God about every need you have and know that He's already supplied those needs. And that peace that you get by knowing He's already there will guard your heart and your mind. And then in, in verse 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on this. This is what you, you are called to think on. God's promises. Not your worries, not what you think could happen, how I could fail. There's not a job I've ever started that I didn't know going into it. There are at least a thousand different ways I can screw this up. And I'll probably try 500 of them. But when I go into it, I need to go into it thinking, God, you're on my side. When I, when I go down this little blind alley and I get there and it's a dead end and I run into that wall, I just need to repent. Say, okay, God, I screwed up. I should have gone left when I went right. I'm going to go back, do it your way. Eventually, you will learn to start hearing that little voice of the Spirit. And when you hear the voice of the Spirit and you start obeying it, it becomes more clear and more clear and more clear and more clear. We talked about it yesterday, you know, in sports. You, get, you develop muscle memory. You do something. My coach used to yell at us so much. Get that elbow in when you shoot. You shoot like this in practice with your elbow out, you're going to shoot like that in a game. How you practice is how you will play. Well, we just need to practice. 
We need to practice thinking on the right stuff and saying the right things. And we will find ourselves doing the right things when we think on Him. When we, when all, the only thing that comes first and foremost in my mind is, what did God say about it? If He said, I can, then I can. I don't care what the devil says. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what anybody says. If I know God's in it, I've just got to follow Him. And as I do that, it'll start small, but I'll learn, and I'll go on and go on. And you get better. You grow in it. And as you, as, you, as you have more successes, He gives you more responsibility. And as He gives you more responsibility, it gets more frightening. But you've seen, it's like David. I, I know Goliath's a big guy, but that was a scary lion. And God helped me kill it. And it was a scary bear, but God helped me kill it. I can take care of that guy. Not because I'm something, but I got a big God. When we start getting our minds and guard our place, our dwelling place, and know that my, my dwelling place is seated with Him in heavenly places, how can I lose? I can't. Even if I fail, I haven't failed. I just have, I just have to not quit. Back up, try again. Go another way. Lord, what did I do wrong? He'll tell you. Just meditate on it. But keep remembering... I've already won. The prize is mine. When you know the prize is yours, it gives you a lot of boldness to go try things. Amen?